Welcome to Link to Hope, a podcast from Kentucky Cancer Link. I'm your host, Ben Keaton. Until there's a cure for cancer, Kentuckians need hope today. Link to Hope is a monthly podcast featuring experts discussing ways to remove barriers for Kentuckians in need of screenings, diagnosis, and treatment for cancer. In this episode, we will explore how cancer treatment has evolved to help physicians and patients fight hard to treat cancers. Not all cancers are the same, and we are seeing increased collaboration between the patient advocacy community, physicians, and the innovative sector to help create new treatment options for previously untreatable cancers. Our conversation will begin with Caroline Johnson, founder of Twisted Pink. She will talk with us about her personal journey with cancer and her passion for funding innovative cancer research for metastatic breast cancer. We will also hear from Shauna Gardner with Pharma. She will provide insight into what it takes to create a new therapeutic treatment and how the industry is working with providers and patient advocacy groups to help bring the next generation of medicines to the market. While we still have plenty of work to do, I am encouraged by the efforts the community is making to help those living with cancer. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's begin with Caroline Johnson, founder of Twisted Pink. Caroline, thanks for joining us today. Look forward to hearing a little bit more about Twisted Pink. Uh, Can you give our listeners a little bit of background about your organization and why you founded it? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me, first of all. And um, so Twisted Pink is a nonprofit organization that I started six years ago. And it was a year after I was diagnosed with stage three estrogen positive breast cancer. Um, Along my journey, I learned um, how little money was going to stage four breast cancer metastatic disease. And um, I wanted to do something to help the patients that I felt were being left behind the pink ribbon. And I, when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed in June of 2013. And shortly after that, I had surgery. Um, I started chemotherapy in the, in October, um, or, or actually late, late August, early September. And I was going through chemo in October. And so I would notice things that, um, I had never noticed really before about breast cancer awareness during breast cancer awareness month. And I started doing my own research and found that only seven to 10% of research dollars were, were directed to metastatic breast cancer. Um, And back six, seven years ago, um, I um, found very little um, resources for metastatic disease. And I was asking some really tough questions of my oncologist and, um, you know, I, I decided that after I was treated, I was going to do something for metastatic patients. And so we started Twisted Pink. And since then, we've um, been able to direct a little over $923,000 to metastatic breast cancer research through our organization. And we collaborate with other organizations here locally and um, on a national level to do that now today. And there's, you know, more and more uh, resources today, seven years later for metastatic breast cancer patients, but we still have a long way to go in terms of, um, advancing research for breast cancer. So, um, we're just continue to keep doing what we're doing. And our mission actually is, um, the mission of Twisted Pink is to provide hope and connection for metastatic breast cancer patients through bold breakthroughs in research 
and awareness of the disease. Um, and the reason that's so important um, to metastatic patients is because for so very long, they've felt left behind that pink ribbon campaign. And, um, you know, when you think about the amount of people that are surviving breast cancer, it, it is a lot. Um, but when you hear the 98% survival rate of breast cancer, um, you have to be careful when you talk about statistics because, you know, when you hear early detection saves lives, that that's not necessarily true. Um, early detection is really good at um, helping you prevent toxic treatments like chemotherapy and radiation, but early detection does not guarantee that your breast cancer is not going to eventually metastasize. And so what we as an organization want people to realize is that, you know, the, the five-year survival rate is high when you, when you have early detection, but what happens after five years and, and, you know, when you have younger and younger women being diagnosed with breast cancer, we want to make sure that people understand that that's not, that there's no guarantee, you know, after five years, your, your survival rate continues to go down in many, many cases for younger women. So um, we want to do more for research that will help scientists and um, oncologists understand why breast cancer metastasizes. Can you talk a little bit about some of the complexities around stage four metastatic breast cancer and you know, why we don't have a treatment yet and why it's important to continue to, to fund research to find a treatment? Well, like, so from, I can't speak, you know, complete science and I, and I can't because I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you that right now patients are living from drug to drug. And I can tell you that eventually the drugs that patients are on, that the, the, the patients that have metastatic breast cancer, they, they take medications that are targeted to their specific subtype of breast cancer. And eventually those drugs will stop working. And, um, the, the cancer becomes immune or smarter than the medication. And, so patients are living drug, literally drug to drug, and they're hoping that they will have no evidence of disease long enough that they can get to the next scientific breakthrough. And that's basically where we are in science with, with breast cancer right now. Um, and so we would like to keep funding that research for metastatic disease that will hopefully find better targeted therapies, whether it's through immunotherapy or, you know, better breakthroughs in research that is targeting these different subtypes of breast cancer. Um, because really breast cancer is not one disease. It is, it is um, many different diseases because you have the, all these different subtypes and, um, you know, you have genetic factors and you have, um, you know, different, you know, everybody, everybody's breast cancer is different. So um, you have different um, individual circumstances um, and people react different to different drugs. Um, so the science is difficult um, and that's why it's so hard for um, science to advance quickly because they need better understanding of number one, why does breast cancer metastasize um, 
to different different areas of the body. Um, so gaining an understanding of that and then finding the drugs that target that metastases, you know, in those different subtypes is, is it's a difficult task. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation kind of from the layman's term, which is, um, well, actually even more from a layman's term because you, you have personal experience with this. Yeah. I'm curious about what you all have learned from your partnerships with some of the different scientists that you all have funded. Um, can you first of all tell us about the type of research that you all are funding and perhaps anything that you all are learning from the early stages of that? Um, well, first of all, what I have learned as a patient is that research, <laughs> I did not realize that researchers oftentimes have to raise their own money to find that seed funding to develop the idea to be able to go out and apply for grants from, you know, big pharmaceutical companies or the NIH or the Department of Defense. Um, and through this whole process with Twisted Pink, I have learned that it's so very important for organizations like Twisted Pink to fund that seed research that will allow science to advance on a higher level. So one of the researchers we funded at the University of Louisville, her name is Dr. Ioannis Imbert Fernandez, and she was doing research on estrogen-positive breast cancer. And through the funding from Twisted Pink and um, Hope Scarves, which is another group that we collaborate with, she was able to prove her hypothesis and go look for a grant um, with the NIH and was recently last year awarded a grant with the NIH that was over a million dollars. Um, so we had given her, I think, a little over $150,000, $200,000 to do that basic research. And then she was able to take that information and apply for a larger grant. And that's where the Twisted Pink organization is very beneficial to research. So we're literally helping find a needle in a haystack where these researchers wouldn't have the funding to be able to you know, get those major dollars from other larger grant organizations. I think Twisted Pink is in a unique role because of, of your background with breast cancer, um, but also because you are a patient-focused group that is raising money to help find research and cures for metastatic breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to have the patient's voice in this process and kind of the important role between um, connecting the researchers with those that might be living with metastatic breast cancer? Well, so I always say knowledge is power. And so part of the role of Twisted Pink is to help patients, you know, first of all, educate themselves on metastatic breast cancer and um, the science and to know as much about their disease as they can possibly know, to, to learn how to advocate for themselves um, and our organization is very proud of including all stages of breast cancer into that conversation, not just stage four patients, but early stage patients as well, because early stage patients need to understand that they, once they go through their treatment, they need to be vigilant about checking themselves constantly, yearly, you know, at least annually with their um, medical team um, and being aware of what are the signs of recurrence because um, 
breast cancer does not have a cure. And we want to make sure that patients are aware that metastatic breast cancer is still possible Um, without scaring people, obviously, but being honest with the facts and, you know, where we are with science right now. And um, if we can teach patients to just look for those early signs, then um, we can engage them in that conversation about metastatic disease and what they can do to help the the metastatic community. Um, so it's very important to to be knowledgeable about it and to advocate for yourself. And I find it very powerful to be an advocate for other people that that have metastatic breast cancer. Um, it gives me, you know, hope that if, if my breast cancer were to return, there's organizations like Twisted Pink out there that would be fighting for, um, for me if, if, if it were to return. What do you hope the cancer treatment space, especially metastatic breast cancer looks like six years from now? Mm, gosh, I hope, well, first of all, I hope we have a, a much bolder, um, deeper understanding of, of why metastatic breast cancer um, happens in across subtypes. I hope we have a lot more less toxic treatments than we currently have. Um, many of these patients, you know, endure... Um, you know, constant treatment throughout their, um, their journey. And, um, the side effects from those treatments can be pretty, pretty heavy and like life altering. So, um, I think scientists need to focus on, you know, the overall patient and quality of life when they are, um, in the lab and thinking of ways that they can stop metastases, they also need to consider, you know, the patient and the, and the quality of life and the overall um, human experience. And when you involve patients in your, your research and your clinical trials, um, I think that your research becomes better because it's not just science. It's you're you know, you're dealing with real people and, um, you know, when scientists involve patients in developing clinical trials, for instance, it it makes um, the clinical trials so much more um, beneficial to patients when they involve patients in that design. Well, Caroline, thank you for sharing your story with us today. And more importantly, thank you for all the hard work that you're doing with Twisted Pink to help push for innovation in cancer therapeutics. Thanks for having me. To help us better understand how innovative treatments are used in the clinical setting, we are joined by Dr. Avinash Bhakta, part of the colorectal cancer team at UK's Marquee Cancer Center. Dr. Bhakta, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'd love to get your perspective as a physician about the relationship uh, between the physician and a person and their family that is facing cancer. Can you talk a little bit about your role uh, in working with somebody that's uh, facing cancer, and um, and then we'll talk a little bit about how that role has changed over the years. And thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, real great privilege and an honor uh, to be part of this podcast. Um, so my relationship as a surgeon uh, to my patient and my patient's family, it's a unique relationship. Um, 
quite like no none other. Uh, I kind of I grew up in a small town where everybody was pretty close knit, and so when I see a patient, it's important that I see the patient's family as well, uh, because developing a good, strong relationship with the patient as well as the family members is important. What I kind of tell them is that I play a very small role in their whole lives. Um, my goal is to get them better than what they came to me as. And the important thing is, is that their family member who is their support network really helps get them through the entire cancer treatment process. Um, so what I do is I usually see the patient after they get diagnosed with a colorectal cancer. Um, I talk about the treatment options. Usually there's surgery uh, involved in that. And then we talk about what the surgery entails, what they need to do to kind of help improve their chances of having a successful surgery. And then more importantly, what we do after surgery. Um, the, the relationship that I have with my patients doesn't stop after the surgery is completed. That's just kind of the beginning. The next five years is a very important uh, journey for both of us. And that's where we really need to make sure that recurrence of the colorectal cancer, if it was initially a treatable colorectal cancer, doesn't occur. And so they really see me every three to six months for the first couple of years and then every six months to a year for the next three years. So we really do have a huge relationship that we develop. Um, a lot of my patients know a lot about my family. Because uh, I bring that and bring talk about my kids with them too. Um, it's really, you know, what happens to them affects me and affects us all, uh, and that's why we that's why we do we as surgeons do what we do, especially those that treat colore colorectal cancer. Is we want to see successful outcomes. We want to see these patients go on live. 30, 40, 50 years more, die of something besides a colorectal cancer um, and kind of just live out their lives, see what they want to do with their lives and be, be productive members to our society and to our commonwealth. But can you talk a little bit about how the treatment for colorectal cancer specifically and then kind of cancers in general have changed over the years and, and how it's allowing folks to live longer lives with the cancer? Absolutely. That's a great question. So I'm going to start with rectal cancer because we I know we group things together as colorectal cancer, but they're really two separate entities, colon cancer and rectal cancer. Low-lying rectal cancer has evolved greatly over the past five to 10 years. We initially would just do surgery um, and then chemotherapy, but we saw that there was a high local recurrence rate. And so now it's really become multimodal treatment where we have radiation oncologists, surgeons, and medical oncologists involved in the treatment. We initially, most of the time for locally advanced rectal cancers, do uh, radiation therapy before we do any surgery. The radiation therapy really helps to decrease the risk of local recurrence. The surgery is then done to cure them of their cancer, and then the, uh, and then the chemotherapy afterwards is done to decrease the risk of systemic recurrence, meaning the cancer spreading to other parts of the body. With that, we've seen our recurrence rates drop drastically over the past five to 10 years. Um, and we're still evolving our treatment algorithm uh, in the next five to 10 years. It, it may be something completely different, but our overall goal is to do two things. We wanna improve the quality of our patients' lives. And more so, we, uh, 
also we want to improve the or increase the quantity of their life as well. So that's what I always talk to our patients about is the quality of their life as well as the quantity of life. So can you talk a little bit about how working as part of a team um, of oncologists and surgeons to help treat somebody's cancer is helping to improve their lives and why being part of a large research university uh, is such an important part of improving cancer outcomes. And so resources, I think that's the biggest thing of being part of this Marquee Cancer Center that has such great outreach with our community surgeons, with our community medical oncologists, community radiation oncologists. We understand that our patients, um, that our patients travel quite a long distance when they have to come see us at Marquee Cancer Center. And so the promise that we make is that if there are resources available in their communities, if there is that specialty care, then we are there to help support those physicians improve these patients' lives. We are there to say, if there is some uh, clinical trial available, maybe we can get you enrolled. We can find innovative ways to get you that two and a half hours to three hour drive, however long it takes um, to get involved in these trials that will ultimately help your survival. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing about being involved with the Marquee Cancer Center is that uh, research background, but but we take it a step farther in saying that, you know, you don't always have to come to our Marquee Cancer Center. We can use our affiliate networks. We can use community physicians, um, really get that care done in your community so that it takes a lot of the stress and burden out on our patients. Some of the most heartbreaking stories that I've had as a surgeon are patients who have had to build their own roads from Eastern Kentucky in order to get to see me in Lexington. Um, and then also some people, some people who have to get, you know, they have to borrow money in order just to get to Lexington. And so really I ask myself is that if I were put in that situation where I had to spend $20 to get somewhat, get somewhere to get treated for cancer, or if it was $20 to put food on the table, what would I choose? And I obviously would have chosen to put food on the table. And so that in this day and age, with the amount of resources that we have, no person should ever have to ask that question and no person should ever be put in that position. So at a place like Marquis, it seems like there's kind of two different um, healthcare routes um, that, that cancer research is taking. And one is the implementation of the research and so sort of the treatment of patients. Um, but the other is the actual research for new treatment options, new diagnostic uh, tools, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you all are working together in both treating patients that have cancer, but also finding new treatments for people who are facing cancer? That's a great question. So the two routes work synergistically um, with the ultimate goal of helping to eradicate the high incidence of colon, colorectal cancer in our commonwealth, especially in our Eastern Kentucky population. And so you kind of, you divide it up very well is that we have the clinical side, which looks at healthcare delivery, healthcare um, uh, access, uh, is a big one. Uh, and what we do with that clinical side is then we also help um, get our basic science side uh, to work with us to find newer 
innovate to find innovations in what is unique in our patient population, what genetic markers are unique, what um, uh, what treatment uh, medications we can use for our uh, population with the clinical trials that we have as well, too. Um, some of the unique things that we have with Dr. Evers is Dr. Evers has his own basic science lab, and he's very, as my mentor, he does a lot for me in terms of uh, helping me get access to these Appalachian patients as well. And so what I do is after after these big operations for our Appalachian for our Appalachian patients, I usually send a lot of that pathology, the tissue that I get, to our basic scientists who are building um, models to help get the best treatment afterwards for these patients. So we're looking to see if we have better chemotherapeutic options, better immunotherapy options, just better overall treatment options to help decrease the cancer recurrence and help decrease the cancer burden in our in our Commonwealth. So really, um, a lot of times, every week to two weeks, I usually meet with the basic science lab uh, of Dr. Evers to see what uh, what they're kind of in, in needing from the clinical side, uh, and then having that conversation with the basic scientists who not, don't necessarily see the patients, but they see the pathology from the patients gives us the best route at getting treatment for each individual patients. Um, I say individual, and I think it's, it's really becoming the paradigm is shifting from initially from for the past five years was looking at it from more of a global scale. And now we're really want to individualize our medicine. Each patient's cancer uh, likely is different. It has its own unique characteristics. And we really want to target those unique characteristics to help eradicate the cancer completely from a team approach. So I'm glad that you brought that up because as I'm understanding it, the cancer treatment you know, not all cancers are, are the same. And even within different types of cancers, um, an individual's response to treatment can be very different. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, we're kind of going from the sledgehammer approach to maybe more of a scalpel approach to, to treating cancers and maybe how that you think that might continue to evolve over the years? Yeah. Um, so it, I think you the analogy that you use is very is perfect. Um, rather than kind of attacking every cell that we have, even the good cells, we want to use that scalpel, be more precision medicine. Um, and that's what that's what the goals of the collaboration between the basic science and the clinical science uh, is in our Marquee Cancer Center. And that's kind of what we're evolving towards is we wanna identify specific genetic markers that we can target with medications that we are either developing or have been developed and give the patients that treatment so that way it kills just that can just those cancer cells rather than the entire uh, cell population. How does the Marquee Cancer Center work with national organizations or, or bring in national resources to help develop treatment options or, or better yet to treat more Kentuckians with innovative uh, medications or treatments? Uh, so that's a great, a great question there. So we have unique grants that we have with the National Institute of Health. Um, we have uh, active participation with national clinical trials. Um, and that really brings in cutting edge therapies 
whether it be surgical modalities, whether it be chemotherapy modalities, radiation modalities, uh, it really brings in our uh, national breadth of knowledge to our specific patient population. Some of those studies were the lead site, meaning we initiated those studies and we kind of are bringing in other, we're, we're making it generalizable to the nation who have similar types of patients. Um, other studies, we are using the what's going on nationwide and kind of bringing that to our patient population as well. And you've mentioned a few times uh, the focus on rural healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about why Marquee Cancer Center feels such a strong need to reach out to, to rural Kentucky and what that relationship looks like? Yeah, so rural, uh, I grew up in a rural community. Uh, I think that's why I feel so passionate about this topic and feel so passionate about my patients from Eastern Kentucky, Appalachian Kentucky, is because my nearest healthcare provider was 72 miles away. My nearest Walmart was 72 miles away. Um, the nearest airport was 135 miles away. And so I know what it means to have to travel great distances in order to get what, get the, get what you need, get the treatment you need, or kind of get just what, yeah, daily, daily things that you need. So Marquee Cancer Center has taken a huge initiative because what we have found is that our rural communities are, they're, they're in need. There's a lack of specialty care. There's a lack of primary care providers. And so access is just not there for our patients in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachian Kentucky. Um, additionally, um, there's the, you know, the great distances that they have to travel and we'll get to Lexington. So Marquee Cancer Center has identified that. And what we are trying to do is make satellite opportunities for physicians in these rural communities that they can rely on us as their academic partner um, that has the backing of National Institute of Health, National Cancer uh, Networks, um, and giving innovative treatments to these patients who normally may not have been able to have access to that. Where do you hope cancer research will go in the next five to 10 years? And what do you think treatment will look like um, as we get more specialized in, and are able to tackle some of these harder to get cancers? So my hope in the next five to 10 years is that cancer research continues the trajectory that it's going on. Um, when I first started, you know, way back when it was, it was what I do then I don't do now. Um, and so I've seen evolution of our cancer research and treatments, and I've seen improved outcomes in, in colon, colon and rectal cancer. The next five to 10 years, I'm hoping that we, you know, there's some routes where we don't even need surgery. Uh, so sometimes we can develop medications, develop radiation uh, modalities that can maybe even not necessitate surgery. I'm not saying that's going to happen necessarily, but the hope is, is that with the next five to 10 years, with more research, we're able to essentially uh, continue decreasing the rates of colon uh, and rectal cancer mortality, especially in our Commonwealth, but across the nation as well, too. Um, then I think the, the ultimate goal is that we develop medications that'll target only the 
cancer-ridden cells. I think right now, a majority of my patients have issues with completion of chemotherapy because of the major side effects that unfortunately they have. Um, if, you're, if you're a person listening to this and you have a family member who had some sort of cancer and had to go through chemotherapy, you guys um, know all too well, you guys witness it firsthand. And so um, we feel those side effects and that's what all this, and that's what all this research, that's what your participation in these studies uh, is really about to help us figure out the best way to treat our patients by and improve their quality of life. Dr. Bakta, thank you for spending some time with us today, talking with us, uh, and thank you for all your work that you're doing and helping to uh, treat all those Kentuckians that are facing uh, cancer. Ben, I thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. Finally, it is helpful to understand all the work that goes into developing an innovative cancer therapeutic. We spoke with Shauna Gardner with Pharma to help us better understand how these treatments are developed and what it takes to bring it to market. Shauna, thanks for joining us today. Really looking forward to hearing uh, from you about the industry's impact on innovation and uh, cancer treatment. Um, I thought we'd start with talking a little bit about how cancer treatment has evolved over the last 20 years. Uh, can you give a little insight into that and also um, how pharmaceutical companies bring new treatments to the market? Talk about that process a little bit. Yeah, totally. Ben, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, so as you can imagine, and likely already aware, it's a super complex process and it's got its fair share of setbacks as we work through not only the, the initial research aspect of uh, creating, uh, creating drugs, but also just bringing them through the FDA approval process into market. Um, but large biopharmaceutical companies take on that substantial risk because there's no guarantee that the significant investment of time and effort often needed to discover a new medicine really will ever yield an effective therapy. So from drug discovery through the FDA approval process, the development of a new medicine takes on average 10 to 15 years and costs $2.6 billion. So um, as you can imagine, that that's that's quite lengthy. So you really need a number of, um, of uh, medicines and treatments in the pipeline um, over, of, over decades of time to ensure that you've got kind of a pipeline of future treatments and cures. Um, so that we're taking care of folks as, as research is developing, as diseases and cancers are evolving, we're really needing to stay ahead of things so we consistently keep that pipeline going. Um, and then less than 12% of new molecular entities that enter clinical trials eventually ever re receive FDA approval. So that's, a su that's, if you think about that, that's pretty small in the large scheme of things. So there's nothing really simple about curing cancer, and cancers take many forms. In fact, I, I think some people would argue that, that no two cancers are alike. Can you talk a little bit about how pharmaceutical companies or, or how the industry tries to tackle these and, and how we're starting to find ways and, uh, of treating harder-to-treat cancers? Yeah, completely. So I think what's really exciting is we are moving into um, – seeing significant advancements in personalized medicine and personalized medicine is literally exactly what it sounds like. It's catering a treatment or a medicine to that specific person's disease or cancer. So that's actually something that we're, our companies are focused and zeroed in on and we're seeing a significant percentage um, increase of that specific type of medicine 
coming out of our companies and, and getting FDA approval. So that's really the future of cancer care. You know, every person's case is going to be different. Every person's, um, whether it's whether there's leukemia or whether it's a brain tumor or whatever it might be, we can't treat a cancer the same. So if we can manage to come up with the medicine or cure or treatment that's going to literally innovatively cater to that patient, that's really where we want to be. So as the pharmaceutical industry works to, to treat some of these harder to treat cancers, how do you all work with advocacy groups to to identify patient needs um, and, and to find, a, a, again, since we're treating kind of the unique patient, um, it's a little bit different than, than casting a wide net. Um, I'm assuming we have to find a way of working within the patient advocacy community to to help make sure that we're meeting the needs of, of the people that they serve. Yeah, completely. So the, the relationship um, between kind of all the different stakeholders when we're looking at uh, patient advocacy. So patient advocacy it's not just the patient. You're also looking at the, the caregivers, the family members, everyone that's that ultimately is impacted or affected by that patient. And so if we look at those stakeholders, those are extremely important to the overarching, um, the overarching kind of ecosystem of drug development, because we need to initially, especially when you looked at that um, FDA approval process, all those volunteers are potentially a part of that FDA approval process for for. Uh, kind of streamlining those drugs to approval and to hopefully bringing those drugs to market. But you need to understand kind of how the patient, um, the disease itself, so it's important, per, important aspect of the research, understanding how a drug affects a patient. The, that's where the family and the caregivers can be involved in kind of understanding possibly um, uh, symptoms that, that are a result of the disease, how the drug might impact them. How can we improve that drug moving forward so they don't maybe have that nausea as a result of whatever medicine they're taking? Um, so the the dynamic between the patient and our industry is really, really important because it needs we need to consistently have that open line of communication to make sure that we can continue improving, but also better understand what treatments and cures do we need. So it's a really, really important relationship. You mentioned ecosystem, and I think that's a really interesting term because I'm assuming that with the complexity of developing a pharmaceutical treatment for for cancer, it's it's not as simple as um, one company does one thing and then all of a sudden we have a new treatment. Uh, there's many different parties involved. Can you talk a little bit about the different parties and specifically, you know, what role do the providers play in this and the academic research institutions? Yeah. So. Um it is, it's, it's multi-layered and it needs to be because there needs to be that synergy um, within the ecosystem as we're talking about it um, in order to make sure that the research is being done, the patients are involved, um, there's funding, research and development, the government and making sure that there's policies that are ultimately focusing on supporting um, that ecosystem, supporting patients, ensuring they have healthcare and access to um, to, to insurance and um, making sure that as, as uh, research and developers, we're able to ultimately fund that research and development, um, making sure that uh, the NIH is funded and is going strong too, so we can take the basic research they do in order to apply it to then new, new treatments and cures. So it's really, um, it's a very symbiotic relationship that all these stakeholders within the ecosystem have. And it's really, really important that we're all thriving in order to, to make sure that we can continue to all do the work that we want to do. 
You mentioned a few policy areas that um, are, are important to to both pharmaceutical companies, but also to the the patients that that you all serve. Can you talk a little bit more about any potential barriers that uh, that are in place that that may keep patients from getting the treatments that they need, or that are uh, hindering companies from furthering research and development? Yeah, totally. And that kind of um, it's a good segue from what we were just talking about previously is. In order to make sure that our companies, biopharmaceutical companies, the largest ones in the world, can continue to invest in research and development, we need to make sure we're fostering and creating a competitive marketplace and supporting um, our companies and the ability to do that research and development. So I would say that we need to make sure that policymakers understand the work we're doing and understand that they need to continue to support policies that are not going to hinder the work that we're doing, we're trying to do. So um, that's extremely, really important um, as we move forward, both on a state and federal level. Um, I also would say that, you know, specific to the patient, you know, financial burdens really first and foremost are what we're most concerned about. You know, we can invest billions of dollars in treatments and cures, but if patients can't access them, what's it all for? So I think from a cost perspective, it's extremely important that um, we all come together to better understand what's infringing on the patient to be able to afford their medicines and how we improve that and, and support policies that are going to help to lower cost sharing for patients, um, improve plan benefit design to make sure that patients actually understand their insurance, what it covers, what it doesn't cover, making sure that they have choices to decide if a plan is best for them or maybe not, might, might not be the best plan for them, depending on what drugs or, or um, treatments they might need. So, uh, you know, cost is definitely something that we as an industry uh, want to take head on to make sure that pa patients can access their medicines. Because ultimately, you're going to add more costs to the healthcare system if the patient's not adhering and taking, getting access to treatment in a timely way or making sure that they're taking, whether it's cancer or whether it's something else, it's just really important. What's one thing that you have found fascinating about the uh, drug development process or working within the pharmaceutical industry that you wish more people knew about? That's a great question. So I, prior to joining pharma, I worked on the provider side. So I worked for a hospital system. And so I really saw um, pharma through a totally different lens than I currently do. And, um, and, and I really have always considered myself from, you know, I, doing state policy and doing advocacy work. Really, at the end of the day, it was really important to me to work for an organization that was, was about helping patients and helping people and helping grandma and grandpa on Medicare and helping moms and babies on Medicaid. And so I think that what I found most enlightening coming to pharma is the supply chain is complex and it's not so simple as, looking at the list price of a drug and saying, oh man, you know, why is it that drug costs this much money? And that's not affordable. How is, how does the average person, you know, afford that? It's way more complex when you actually look at, okay, what, what is the plan actually covering? The, what is the pharmacy benefit manager? What's their take in that? How are the, how are, how is that actual net price negotiated and figured out? You know, so I think it's something that even I coming into working for the organization, it's not an easy thing to explain to people. So I think something that to answer, to kind of wind back down to answer your question is, 
you really can't understand um, the cost of a drug unless you really fully understand the supply chain and how the supply chain works. And I think that's something that we all should take a look at so that we can actually look at reforms that ultimately will improve the system, lower the cost of drugs, making sure that patients can actually access them. You're, you have to get at the supply chain and understand all the intricacies and complexities of that to make sure it works for the patient. Great. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today. And thank you for sharing a little bit of insight into what it takes to bring a pharmaceutical to market. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a part of our conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share on social media. We are back each month with a new episode. Please join us next time.